the Manifesto, a podcast. Your regular visit to the archives of vanity, where men and women who stopped making myths turned to issuing proclamations. Your guides for this journey, my co-host, the novelist, Phil Cly, me, the knocker-off of tall hats, Jacob Siegel. May you continue to be a person. So this week, we are joined by the novelist and essayist, Jared Marcel Pollan, talking about Vaclav Havel's 1978 essay, The Power of the Powerless, and from a decade prior, the same year as the Prague Spring, the Velvet Underground seminal record, White Light, White Heat. So without further ado, Jared, uh, nice to have you on board with us. What can you tell us about Vaclav Havel? Well, thanks for having me, gentlemen. Um, well, what I can tell you is that here, his name is pronounced Vaslav with a soft C. Uh, <clears throat> not that that's a problem, of course. And by, but... by here, you mean you're joining us appropriately enough from, from Prague. <clears throat> yes, I live in Prague. Um, uh, and Havel himself was born in Prague in 1936. He was born into a wealthy family, I guess you could say nouveau riche. Um, his uh, grandfather uh, was an architect and a developer. <clears throat> uh, he built Lucerna Music Palace, which is a, a major complex in the city center. In Wenceslas Square, uh, hosts concerts, and you know there's a cinema in there, shopping center, arcade, things like that, and lots of other buildings around the city. His uncle was a film producer, worked for um, uh, Belaton Studios, I believe, uh, which had one of the largest sound stages in Central Europe at that time. Actually, when the Nazis occupied Prague, Eleni Riefenstahl shot one of her last films in that soundstage. The name of that film, I can't remember at the moment. Um, and so the Havel family was very wealthy. Havel grew up in the 1930s, in the last days of the Czechoslovak First Republic, which lasted from 1918 at the, at the end of the First World War until 1938, with the uh, Munich Agreement and the annexation of the Sudetenland. Uh, the found, sort of founding father figure of the Czechoslovak First Republic is Tomasz Mazarik, the first president, um, with whom Havel always identified uh, in terms of his sort of political heritage, a kind of Enlightenment uh, humanism as well as a sort of philosophical, um, uh, there being a philosophical underlay of that uh, connected to uh, people like Heidegger and uh, the people who studied with Heidegger. Uh, and Mazarik himself actually studied with Husserl. Uh, and so that was the sort of intellectual and political climate that Havel grew up in. And that informs his later uh, thinking and writing. And so he goes on then to become a, a playwright, right? And his... Uh... The nouveau riche character of his background causes his him some problems uh, with the party after the communist takeover. Um, I did not, you know, there are different accounts that I've read about uh, how how difficult it became for him due to his family background, but certainly it seems like he was uh, viewed with some suspicion, to say the least, and then establishes himself as a, a playwright of some repute. Would that be fair to say? Yeah, definitely. I mean, so after the communist coup in 1948, um, his property, uh, the property of his family was confiscated by the state and he was branded a bourgeois element. And so he was prevented from studying at 
Charles University. He was prevented from getting an academic education. Uh, in spite of this, he still you know, became a playwright, didn't really start writing plays until the late 50s, early 60s, um, by which point things were kind of warming up here in uh, the Czechoslovak Socialist Republic. And these plays were subversive, certainly, but he was still able to put them on at that time. And he was fairly well known within Prague, um, but was not nearly as famous as somebody like Kundar, for example, who was not his exact contemporary. And Kundar was a little bit older by that point, <clears throat> but he was certainly well known and I think quite popular, but he didn't yet have the reputation that he would develop in the 70s. As a playwright still in the 70s, primarily. Uh, by the time the 70s come around, he's not really working on plays anymore. He's more sort of writing pamphlets and, and articles okay. and like that. Which leads us to the the power of the powerless, which is probably um, he's got a, a trio of works that are well known, but I I would say that's probably the best known, the thing that he is um, best remembered for at this point. It's probably worth noting that by sixty eight, the KGB is noting the writer's Kahoot, uh, Bakulik. I'm just going to butcher these uh, Leem, Kundera, and Havel as like the the underground anti party group. So. Hmm. You know, he's one of the prominent intellectuals who are providing energy to the Prague Spring, which is just sort of loosening. As, as, as Jared mentioned, you know, the, there's a the communists come into power sort of legitimately in 1947, and then they're already kind of losing power, losing legitimacy within a year. And um, uh, the orders of Stalin, they have a coup, uh, take control of the government. And there's a lot of brutal repression in the uh, late 40s, early 50s, but there's also a kind of um, like ideological zeal, right? So it's not that they're just sort of cynical bureaucrats exercising power. There's a wonderful Ivan Klima novel called Judge on, uh, Judge on Trial, where the main character like um, uh, spends time in Teresa in the Nazi concentration camp, which Ivan Klima did, and is one of the people who survives that and kind of comes out with this like burning passion that at the end of this like horrible suffering and of World War II and the Holocaust, like now we have to remake society, right? You know, convinced I had to do something to ensure that people never again lost their freedom, said they should never again find themselves in hermetically sealed surroundings with no chance of escape, ruled solely by butcher's knives. I prepared to become a foot soldier of the revolution, a hobby horse for a new generation of butchers to mount and wielding their cleavers drive the scattered human herd into rebuilt enclosures and set to with their knives to carve out the splendid future. And I think that that over the course of the 50s, uh, and then the 60s, there's sort of changes that are happening, not just in terms of sort of, you know, people who might align themselves more with the West, but among communist intellectuals, right, who, you know, see a new way forward that's not necessarily going to be the capitalist West or, you know, Stalinist Russia, but something different. And so you have all of these, this opening up of freedoms and, and removal of, of a certain degree of censorship in, in starting in like, I think January of 68. And then it kind of deeply disturbs the, the Kremlin. And there's this sort of intense negotiations where the Czech um, government is trying to convince the, the Kremlin 
that things have not gone too far and intellectuals are pushing very, very hard to push the reforms even further, right? And there's a... Well, this is the new left, broadly speaking, right? As a product of these energies in different parts of the world. There is the Western new left in France, the, you know, the 68ers as they come to be known. There's the American new left, but there's something of a Soviet bloc new left at all. They're not entirely unrelated or dissimilar phenomena. And there's an attempt by people who still consider themselves, you know, not, a, not only of the left, but maybe even Marxist socialists of some variety to sort of come to terms with Stalinism, the capitalist state. And, and um, there's that ferment, which becomes the sort of the, the, one of the key phrases I had read the power of the powerless in college and had been, it had made a real impression on me at the time, but it, it's funny you know, over the years, that impression had sort of turned into uh cliche yeah. as, you know, as memories degenerate into cliches. And so I had sentimentalized the effect that it had, it had had on me. And I had forgot like how analytically just like the parts of it just analytically brilliant yeah. And that one of the key phrases, a sort of key idea that um, that Havel distills is he's describing post-totalitarian yeah. ideology. So if Stalinism represents high totalitarianism, you know, by the time what the the period you two are describing and the the, the ferment of '68, and of course, like. 68 had come after the Hungarian revolution in 1956, right? And there's the series of events. And by the time Havel is writing this or publishing this in 78, you're in a fully post-totalitarian period. And, and, and so there's, there's something that happens that is worth noting, right? So the Czech system is changing from within. And then in 68, Soviet tanks roll in, right? And... They sort of shut down everything and change the system, but it doesn't go back to the the old Stalinist system, or at least not quite like that, right? And in fact, like a lot of the a lot of people who are sort of idealistic believers, right, get kicked out, <laughs> you know, of the party. And so what you have is a reinstitution of order, right, normalization, but you kind of get the sense that they that like nobody believes it. That it's the exercise of power. Um, but you don't have the kind of ideological fire that you had post-World War II. And it's very funny. Like, if you read KGB documents um, from the time, like, you read, um, if, if you read, like, the Czech secret police analyzing, like, the activities of the U.S. government, it'll be, like, this very analytically uh, intelligent, uh, non-ideological explanation of, like, what the U.S. is doing. And... Uh, and then like at the end, it'll have like some pro forma, like, but of course, this is all just for their evil imperialistic project. Right. And it's so clear that the guys writing it, it's not, it's not that they don't believe it. They don't care. Right. They're doing a job and they're doing it actually pretty well. And if you read the KGB documents, like analyzing what's going on, it's like, it's paranoid. Hmm. It's, um, uh, often incorrect, you know, uh, it's less, it's sloppier, but you kind of get the sense that like these guys actually believe it. And so in this post 68 system, it's like, how do you institute a system of social control that is so obviously 
imposed from a foreign nation, right? Uh, and where you're relying on people who are more interested in material things and position and their own security. And through a formalized bureaucracy, right? Yes. It's not about the the ideologically motivated party cadre anymore. You've reached that. So, okay. So Hubble Hubble rejects the idea that it's a dictatorship, right? It's not a dictatorship. It's not something that is like, you know, this one sort of. Okay. Wait, but so this, this is, this brings us to the essay. So this essay, the power of the powerless, probably um, best known for this kind of uh, the parable of the green grocer. Yeah. Um, Jared, why don't you, if you don't mind, like how would you introduce this essay within the Havel oeuvre and then the, the major ideas of this essay? Well, I'd say it's definitely like his, you know, his preeminent work, his magnum opus. It's a book that you can see in all the stores. They sell it in standalone copies. It's about a hundred pages, give or take, maybe a little less. Um, it's uh, it's definitely it's maybe not quite a manifesto, but it might as well be one. In fact, Havel even even opens very self consciously with the line, "A specter is haunting Europe." Yeah. Right? So he's directly yeah. engaging with this sort of Marxist language. Um, <clears throat> and you're right that um, Havel is very clear about this in the opening pages of the essay. What he calls uh, post totalitarianism, which in Havel's terms, is a kind of entropic state or a kind of state of ideological entropy where the state can no longer even bring itself to believe its own mystifications and its own uh, abstractions for the exercise of its own power. So it's deeply cynical, it's deeply dishonest, it's enervated. And the condition of life in a post-totalitarian state, as he describes it, is best exemplified by this parable of the green grocer or the grocery store owner who is in the scenario that Havel creates is asked to put a sign in his shop window saying something like workers of the world unite. And uh, the, the green grocer does this. And in doing so, it is a, a sign of his auto subordination or his sort of auto oppression. He himself becomes complicit in his own oppression uh, in doing this. He's signaling to the apparatus of power that he is willing to perpetuate the fiction that allows that power to continue existing. It's basically an elaborate fiction in which everybody is complicit in their own oppression. And what Havel says is like the woman who, the woman who chooses to inform on the grocer for not putting out the sign is only doing so for fear of her own livelihood. And the officer, STB officer who reports it is only doing so because he fears reprisal and the man above him is only doing so for the same right. reasons. And so it's a system of, of self-deception and uh, hypocrisy. Basically what Havel says at one point in the essay is that hypocrisy becomes the main form of contact or communication with the rest of the society. Yeah. The, 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 there's a nice bit in there where he's talking about like, the guy puts the sign, Workers of the World Unite. He doesn't believe it. Everybody knows nobody really believes it, right? And, you know, it's very different putting Workers of the World Unite uh, than what is actually being said, which is, you know, if he, had, if he were asked to put a sign that said, I am afraid and therefore unquestioningly obedient, right? Mm-hmm. Um, that would be more straightforwardly honest in terms of what the green grocer is actually doing. But it would cause more qualms for the greengrocer. 
he writes, ideology is a specious way of relating to the world. It offers human beings the illusion of an identity of dignity and of morality while making it easier for them to part with them. Um, and it's this sort of, yeah. Right. And in, in the, in the line, just right above that, Phil, it says, uh, the sign helps the green grocer to conceal from himself, the low foundations of right. his own obedience at the same time, concealing the low foundations of the power itself. Yeah. yeah but so, so there's the aspect of this ideological ritual, which is, um, that, you know, you, you use the slogan of the party to avoid uh, declaring that actually you're just coming from a place of sort of abject fear and self-interest. But where Havel goes with this, and it's, I think you said it's a hundred pages, Jared, and the version I had, it's like 85 pages. I think it's in 22 sections. So he, he develops, my point is that he develops this idea from a number of different dimensions, but that falsity of the ideological slogan is not simply about the grocer sort of demeaning himself by lying, though it's that. It's also that the false or artificial ideological slogan becomes the medium through which the individual and the state are coordinated. And this post-totalitarian, decentralized means, it's like in game theory, a, a shelling point. You know, it's a a mechanism of coordination within a system. So the mechanism of coordination can only work if it's dishonest. This is the purpose of the ideology. If it was truthful, if he was living in truth, the greengrocer was living in truth, to use Havel's uh, phrase, it wouldn't work for the coordination purpose because it would be perhaps across purposes with the interests of the state. But the more false and ritualistic the ideology gets, in a way, the more effective it is because the more elastic and purely instrumental it is as this medium of auto-coordination between individual and state. And he has a political analysis of that, but then he, you know, you're talking about how he read Heidegger and there's a Heideggerian dimension to some of this and Husserl and there's a kind of phenomenological dimension to some of this. It's also, um, that's the sort of layer beyond what I just described, but that, that first layer is significant, that, that mechanism of coordination, because it's not a dictatorship anymore, right? To your point from earlier, Phil. So it's, this now supplants the coercive right. exercise of force. And, and and what you want is for people to self-censor. There's a very interesting book by Milan Semeca called The Restoration of Order. Um, and Semeca was, I think post-68, he was like working as like a taxi driver or something, you know, and, and, and writing this. And he was trying to figure out like how this system of social control worked. And, and uh, the book is just a long analysis of... of how they restored order in, in the absence of, of um, uh, a belief. But it, there's a bit where he's talking about censorship. And he says, there are no more tales in today's Czechoslovakia about duels with the censor. Everybody who writes for the public is their own censor, far ser- superior to the official variety. They know best of all what is permitted and what is not through their years of experience of uniform information and its interpretation. 
and they've got like, you know, editors above them who know the same thing. Uh, and, uh, they would hardly risk their livelihood because of some pleasing idea, which may not be exactly anti-socialist, but has yet to be voiced and approved. The new self-censorship functions incredibly well. And so it's like, you know, there are these sort of ideas on the margin that probably aren't even worth the state coming down on you for, but where you're not going and, and, but also probably aren't worth you feeling like you should, um, stake your whole livelihood. You know, that it seems totally pointless and, and quixotic to, to even try. And so you sort of like, you don't even test the boundaries of what is acceptable and it keeps you safe. It keeps your family safe. It'll allow your children to go to college or university and, 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 and won't get your whole magazine shut down or your editors fired or whatever. But there's a crucial point here, I think, in, um, that Havel makes, which is that the just exactly what you've just described, that sort of easy opportunity to assert individuality that people nevertheless choose not to take in a system where, um, you know, if you're weighing out the costs, maybe the costs are relatively high in the event that you get right that the secret police actually get involved or something, but probably you could do it and they choose not to do it. The reason they choose not to do it is not only, Havel says, sort of brute fear, yeah. right? The other reason they choose to do it is because they participate in this system. It, it provides them something. They enter into this as an automata because there is some reward in it for them. Some of that reward in Havel's telling is in this post-Stalinist new version of the communist state. There's new consumer goods have entered the market and there's a degree of um, sort of consumerist comfort that becomes appealing to people and that they don't want to jeopardize. And also that there's something about freedom maybe that they find um, disquieting and that they don't mind yeah. having an excuse to evade. Well, he, he explicitly says this is just a sort of more extreme version of um, – he says, it's not the grayness and emptiness of life in the post-totalitarian system, only an inflated caricature of modern life in general. And do we not, in fact, stand as a kind of warning to the West revealing to its own latent tendencies? And that like the sort of the willingness of people to sacrifice um, uh, spiritual and moral integrity for, you know. Yeah. Are you, uh, either of you familiar right? with Rizgard Lugutko? Do you know him? Yeah. Vaguely. Polish. Uh... I've never read him. He's in the government now. He's in uh, law and justice. He's a Polish intellectual, contemporary Polish intellectual, um, Catholic, conservative Polish intellectual who wrote a book uh, called The Demon in Democracy, very much worth reading, which is a his thesis essentially is that rather than the nominal opposition between communism and liberal democracy from the 20th century or the tripartite opposition between communism, fascism, and liberal democracy as these antithetical political constructs. They're really all sort of rationalist, positivist movements of one form or another, right? And so he makes the argument that uh, there's been a sort of synergy between liberalism and communism and that the triumph of liberalism in the Cold War wasn't quite as clear-cut as it appeared to be, but involved a sort of subsumption of 
elements of communism into liberal democracy. And um, it just, it, it is, it, there is something of that argument and of the Solzhenitsyn spin, you know, Solzhenitsyn has his own version of that as well. That's, I hadn't remembered from having read this the first time, however many years ago in college. And that's quite poignant going back to it now. Right. And actually this, the power of the powerless was published the same year. I believe that Solzhenitsyn gave his uh, infamous lecture. The Harvard Harvard. speech. Um, And uh, later on, Havel makes many points. He references Solzhenitsyn in the power of the powerless. But I think at that point he had either not seen that speech or didn't have a transcript of it because he never references it directly, but he's making a lot of the same points, although not quite as like vociferously as Solzhenitsyn does. But um, what you're talking about is this, this idea that Havel discusses in power of the powerless, which is uh, depersonalized, anonymous, mechanistic power, which is characteristic of, of, politics in the modern era, whether it's a liberal democracy or whether it's communism, all states are essentially rationalistic, power is instrumental, they're bureaucratic, they're anonymous, the people who work within them are atomized, essentially, they have no accountability. And that is a feature of the structure of power that is just as true in the West as it was in the USSR. And um, Havel at one point even says Western totalitarianism in reference to a kind of uh, technocratic, bureaucratic consumer society where people, as a problem. Yeah, and he, he, in late in the essay, he's like technology. Well, he, that is comes the in near the end where he says basically technology is the is the yeah. biggest threat to the sort of existential, um, yeah, you know, foundations of daily life. I mean, and this is a Heideggerian point yeah. as well. Um, but right. the thing that you know. Yeah, we get a being capital B in that particular sentence. Oh, is, is there actually a capital B being in that one? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah just yeah, yeah, to, yeah. to put an Pro- even finer point on are it. in play. <laughs> Look, the yeah. thing that kept uh, like knocking around in my head as I was reading his descriptions of how the system functions and the communication patterns between the different hubs and spokes of the auto post-totalitarian system is like it's like a social cybernetics you know and it seems to me that the technological aspect of this really is essential and that you know cybernetics being the study of uh, systems and of feedback processes within systems and uh, and there was a sort of political dimension of cybernetics from very early on which led its uh, led Norbert Wiener, who's the sort of father of cybernetics, to write a book called The Human Use of Human Beings. But what Havel is describing is a is the is this sort of essentially cybernetic aspect of ideological control systems, which are in a way signaling and communication systems. The greengrocer signals with his workers of the world unite slogan in his storefront, his ascent to the system, his participation in the system, and also like his place within the system, right? Like there is a, the fact that he has to put Mm -hmm. the sign up tells you that he's not at the absolute highest level where presumably they don't have to sort of do these sort of abject displays, right? And there's a, 
this decentralized process of political signaling and feedback that perfects the, these perfects this control system, which nobody can quite locate perfectly. Like it's somewhere in the bureaucracy, but you can't say, where did the directive come from to put that particular slogan in the storefront? There was no directive, presumably, right? But it accords with some institutional demand that does exist. It's not like he didn't invent this in his head. It is performing the function it's supposed to perform. But from from where does that originate? Yeah, it says it says here in the power of the powerless that um, in putting the sign in in the window, uh, he's contributing to the creation of the term he uses is the panorama, basically the essentially what you're describing, yeah. and um, they conform to a particular requirement, and in doing so, they themselves perpetuate that requirement. Uh, quite simply, each helps the other to be obedient. Both are objects in a system of control, but at the same time, they are its subjects as well. Um, they are both victims of the same system and its instruments, but where exactly the center of power lies, as you say, is is not clear because it's a system so heavily dependent on this mystification that nobody is quite certain um, it, you know, in which direction uh, these gestures are being made necessarily or to what authority it's just sort of, it permeates the society down to even the most trivial level, even something as trivial as whether or not to put a sign in the shop window on the May Day parade, something like that. Right. Yeah. And, and Hubble's response to this in terms of what you do is, is interesting because it's not, it's not a, in his telling, a primarily political response to what's you know what has happened. It's not so strategic, though I think he sort of underplays that. So the context in which he's writing this is there's a band, a rock band called the Plastic People of the Universe. Everyone always says that they were terrible. Uh, Hubble himself did not like them, but they're they were part of this, and uh, Jerusalem was the band manager who was kind of like articulated their philosophy to the extent that they had one. I think his nickname in Czech was something like the freak. Um, and he was a, a real character. And I think he might've been the one who went to the funeral of a famous Catholic Czech poet and then had sex afterwards on the tombstone. But um, mm. could be another buddy in this milieu. But that's the sort of yeah. You probably don't want to get that wrong if you're <laughs> in terms of who you're you're saying did that. I'm, I, I, I'm, uh, I'm pretty sure it was him. But I also have a sense a bold, that I don't think he would mind. <laughs> okay, bold anecdote to casually ascribe it someone. This, it was this. Um, it, could be, it, could be it was a culture that was not in opposition to the dominant ideology so much as utterly indifferent to it, right? So they end up in, in legal trouble. And in the December of 1976, a group of intellectuals start working together a, a, a charter, Charter 77, the language of this thing. And they're working on it in the aftermath of the Helsinki Final Act which is there was a treaty that was signed and uh, basically the Soviets wanted Europe to agree on final borders, right? Uh, because, you know, the borders after World War II were 
you know, there was dispute and they wanted everybody to agree to final borders. And there were other things involved in the Helsinki final act. And the Europeans wanted to push through a sort of statement about human rights. Right. And to the Americans, uh, Henry Kissinger famously dismissed it. It was like, we never wanted it, but went along with the Europeans. It's meaningless, just a grandstand play to the left. We're going along with it. Right. You know, this is like the realist George Keenan also famously dismissed it. Like if you're a realist, having a piece of paper with, you know, human rights doesn't mean anything. But groups within the Soviet bloc seized upon the signing of the Helsinki Final Act to argue for their human rights that had just been affirmed by their own states. Right. And um, so the charter, Chartis, starting in the 19, in the late 19... Uh, 76 and putting it out in 77 put out this this statement which is not as Havel takes care to note it's not a political program right it's not stating that you know we need democracy or any of these other things um but rather sort of narrowly working within the rights that czech citizens are supposed to have and allows people to you know sort of anybody who signs at that point is you know living in truth right um, and they don't need to sign on necessarily to a grand ideological project, right. Or, or an affirmation of parliamentary democracy or reformed communism or anything like that. Uh, and for, so that's, that's the context in which he's writing this. He's trying to explain why this gesture is going to be not just a sort of meaningless gesture. Right. And for him, anybody who's living in truth is a genuine threat to the system, right? Because it sort of punctures the panorama, right? And it makes the sort of ideological veneer transparent. And he's interested in the ways in which over time a society sort of changes and starts demanding things that leaders feel they have to respond to, right? And he makes the point that the Prague Spring was not like a top-down imposition Things had changed in the culture and the way that the people themselves felt about the system that they lived under and their leaders had to respond. And that was revolutionizing the system until sort of an external force came in. And he sees, I think, the same sort of possibilities, even when you're taking actions that have no direct political cash out and where you can't sort of tactically analyze how this is going to lead to a better situation. Well, at the start of the essay, he's making the point that, you know, the political situation in in Czechoslovakia is framed by a nuclear superpower right. that sits on top of it. Yeah. Um, so the opportunities, or I think the, the exact point he makes, it's in like one of the early sections of the essay is that there were um, internal dynamics that would have led to some kind of upheaval. Yeah were it not for this superpower. So there's yeah. a sort of uh, false or artificial like equilibrium imposed on the society by the presence of this outside force. So if you were to come up with a oppositional political program, what's that going to do? First of all, it's going to invite repression from that right. external power. Um, so by without... the way, I think, I think this is one of the things that they learned because – in 1968, a bunch of intellectuals signed on to a manifesto called the 2000 Words, right? And the 2000 Words was much more explicitly political, right? They were talking about 
how the Czech Communist Party had like wooded away the confidence of the people in them, that there were retrograde members of the party who wanted to turn back the clock rather than carry the renewal process forward. And they even uh, in this said, you know, we can show our government, we will stand by it with weapons if need be, right? So it's like this very aggressive push for not just political reform, but for a purge of, of uh, you know, the sort of re more reactionary party members and so on. And the sort of immediate upshot, tactical upshot of a bunch of intellectuals signing the 2000 words was that it weakened the Czechs in their sort of the desperate diplomacy that they were doing with Moscow prior to the invasion. Right. Hmm. And so I think that the, the very careful way in which, you know, it's sort of funny, like Havel talks about the sort of, you know, you just live in truth and you're sticking all or nothing. And he's, he's sort of underplaying tactical considerations, but Charter 77 was a very tactically <laughs> astute document, right? Operating in a very particular history that was trying to, you know, even with this sort of Helsinki Act, to frame itself in precisely the correct way and to not cause this, you know, the same kind of problems that other thing, you know, things were. It is, it is uh, I don't know, it's just sort of interesting. And there was this a debate that he had had, and in, in a way, Power of the Powerless is kind of like, Havel putting the final word on this debate with Milan Kundera, who sort of loses uh, because of history, where Kundera had been, oddly enough, more optimistic after uh, the tanks rolled in in 68. And uh, they'd exchanged like a series of, of pretty aggressive sort of essays on you know, what the meaning of this, what we were supposed to do, whether the kind of politics endured. And ultimately, Kundera writes this essay, Radicalism and Exhibitionism, where he sees the sort of the state of somebody being a dissident, right, which is a term that the dissidents reject, which Hubble talks about in the essay, um, as ultimately being a kind of moral exhibitionism, right? If, if you have no hope of putting your political, you know, project uh, into into action, then what are you actually doing, right? Like, Havel does not just have any sort of act in mind, but as he calls it, a risky act, an act, in other words, that does not fear the risk of failure, which probably, indeed, let us remind ourselves once more, no hopes endured, does not even count on success. It is not aimed at it and is therefore indifferent to considerations about the consequences of an action and about its timeliness. In other words, about everything we call tactics. Such action thus has only a twofold aim, to unmask the world in all its irreparable amorality and to display its author in all his pure morality, right? And he just, you know, thinks this is just about sort of self-glorification, right? If you sign your, you sign your name on a petition, there's a kind of, he thinks there's a sort of moral exhibitionism that, that uh, you know, that can only be justified if it sort of has a tactical hope of success. And the power of the powerless is sort of saying like, that can't be the concern, right? The primary concern is within this system, how do we live with human dignity, right? And if enough people choose to live with human dignity, that will have massive effects on the system, but not in the normal way that we think about politics. Yeah, Havel was always very, very explicit about this. He used a number of terms. Uh, throughout, you know, the seventies and eighties, as he was developing his philosophy, uh, he occasionally would refer to it as like holistic politics, 
existential politics, non-political politics, spiritual politics. He was looking for any kind of sort of non-ideological, um, uh, non-traditional uh, sort of political term to frame what he was trying to accomplish because I think- he probably and, like, and you have some criticisms of this, which I want to get yeah, into. <laughs> that the language of what he was trying to accomplish didn't exist or there was maybe no precedent for it um, in uh, among the Czech dissidents, which as you rightly point out, Havel always rejected that term. He thought it was a kind of fetish of the West, the idea of the dissident. Um, and Havel was not nearly as active in 68 as some people might think. Just on that, can I yeah, – sure. there's one thing that I love from the essay, which is not the most important thing from the essay, but I think it's fantastic. He's trying to explain like being a dissident is, is defining you by what you're against. And he's like these people are just trying to live the way that they should. And he And he worked at a brewery. And he worked for a guy who really believed in doing a good job making beer. And because of that, he wrote a letter about this superior who was screwing up things at the brewery. But because the superior was politically connected, this guy gets out of a job. And Havel's like, he is a dissident of the brewery, you know? <laughs> it's not because he was like making a grand ideological statement. It's because he cared about making beer, you know? Right, exactly. It, it prevents, it, and this goes back to what you were saying earlier, it pre it it automatically politicizes things that would be otherwise completely non-political or apolitical in any other kind of society. The, right. the intense level of mystification, ideological mystification is so strong that even something as simple as that, as trying to make your, your local brewery run more effectively, if it comes into conflict with any aspect of the party interest or an individual who's a member of the party, it immediately becomes politicized and has political consequences. So the post-totalitarian uh, state or condition penetrates so deep into the most trivial aspects of daily life that everything becomes an occasion for being a dissident. Uh, and I think so right. one of the reasons why Havel didn't consider him a dissident is because he didn't consider himself to be performing that same kind of action. Um, he didn't consider what he was doing to be a, a political uh, statement of any kind, as you said, he's just asserting honesty and dignity and conscience. He he often called it the politics of conscience. That was a term that he used a lot later in his career. It occurs to me that like this is one of the ways in which his uh, thought is radically not not simply different from, but um, in opposition to the kind of new left thinking. Insofar as you know, the new left is to, to lump a number of kind of different but convergent strands together. The new left generally is looking to cultural expression, cultural freedom as a new domain of the political, right? So the new left sees the uh, failure of the proletariat as a revolutionary class and says, okay, rather than simply giving up and reconciling ourselves to, uh, you know, sort of bureaucratic Stalinist state capitalism or, or uh, liberal capitalism or what have you. Now we, we see that the students or the third world or um, sexuality itself can become the new domain of the political in which the revolutionary consciousness can be reconstituted. Right, yeah, so it, very, very Marcuse, like the liberation. Very yeah. Mark, yeah. very Marcuse, um, totally, and and in its way, totally opposed to what 
Havel is trying to do here, which is not to um, reform or revive the revolutionary potential, but to reclaim a domain truly outside of the political and which, you know, I, I take as a very good thing. It's one of my kind of core instincts yeah. about the world that this is a good thing, but was not an uncontroversial, uh, not an uncontroversial way of, of approaching this at the time. Um, certainly insofar as, you know, there is something, uh, I don't know, conservative, liberal, humanistic, right. And, and even beyond liberal humanistic in his effort to, to like create a spiritual politics and is in his investment in being, it's a real break with full political consciousness. Yeah. Well, this is the idea of the, the parallel polis as Havel talks about it, which is a kind of nascent political structure comes from Benda. that grows up yeah. out of civil society. And so this is, could be anything from like the local administration of like, you know, parents and teachers at schools or like, kids soccer teams and things like that um the sort of or self-organizing nature of civil life that creates these sort of primitive political structures which ha are forced in into un like the into the underground in a uh post-totalitarian state such that everything becomes covert when in fact it's just an expression of people's uh organization in their daily lives and their cooperation with each other so this is interesting because so any quotes he references the parallel polis and Benda directly in, in the essay. Benda was a Catholic political theorist. I actually met his wife and interviewed her. Um, and he was one of the Charter 77 spokesmen who got jailed. Um, and when I talked with folks about um, sort of resistance to the communists, there was the Poles and the Czechs were, there was a sort of a lot of uh, movement. And the, in the, the Czechs had a lot of this, uh, intellectual excitement. But one of the things that dissident after dissident talked about was the fact that there was a problem with the amount of penetration into the society of the actual movement itself, right? And in Poland, you had, um, you had the Catholic Church and you had the labor unions, right? Uh, uh, and the labor unions had ties to American labor unions. And that provided more structural backbone to the parallel polis. And yeah. To the opposition, right. This is the basis of the solidarity movement. Is... Exactly. Yeah. And, um, you know, I was talking with the journalist uh, who, who were kind of like talking to one of the uh, American labor leaders and he was saying, you know, uh, the communists were convinced that uh, the fall of communism was a, a, a conspiracy between Margaret Thatcher, Pope John Paul II, Ronald Reagan, and me. And he, and he looks at the journalist, he goes, but it wasn't any of those guys. <laughs> you know, like his, his argument is like, it's all free labor, right? It's a downfall. And so the Benda essay, The Peril of Polis is all about like, okay, we've signed this charter, but how do we make this thing not simply a an intellectual spasm, right? A thing of the moment, like you actually have to have things that people do that are connected to them being outside the state 
and join with other people, but are also not political. So like, you know, I, I talked to one guy who's in the underground church and he was like, you know, when he's at university, somebody's like, you want to go to one of these underground lectures? And he's like, yeah. And he shows up and it's a lecture on Plato. That's it. It's just a lecture on Plato, you know, but just a lecture on Plato outside the system. I kept talking with dissidents who kept talking about the illegal Boy Scouts. And I was like, what do you do in the illegal Boy Scouts? And they're like, I mean, like woodworking, you know, like tying knots, yeah, tying knot, like literally, except every once in a while. So like, I was like, was there any activities? He's like, well, like when 89 came around, we'd go to our Boy Scout meetings and then go to protests afterwards. Right. And you can sort of see how these like ties are formed outside the state that then can at moments be sort of transmuted into political action. But they need to primarily yeah, not the organization be about that. is there. The coordination yeah. is there with its potential, but right. it needs to be kind of unlocked. And that's exactly. The, and for Benda, by the way, that's not self-organizing. I mean, it's funny because like libertarians love Havel, um, and you can see why. And he's often talking about the self-organization of society, and it makes sense that like the Catholic would be more <laughs> more about like if you need to like <laughs> be a little bit more rigorous about how you um, institute these things. Mm -hmm. Um, but yeah, so then I, I, I want to move to, to some of the stuff that Jared talks about, uh, in his essay, because I think it's really fascinating and relevant to this. So that's Jared's essay, uh, from 2022 in Liberties on Havel and, and especially, I don't think we have even mentioned this yet, but Havel unexpectedly, well, I, I, I sort of comically yeah. <laughs> goes on to become the president right. of a post-Soviet Czechoslovakia, exactly. briefly Czechoslovakia. So like if you are, it's very easy. You can see somebody looking at this. If you're Kundera looking at this and being like, this is delusional, right? Like you're telling yourself that this will have some sort of mass effect in society, but there's no plan of action. There's nothing. And actually Philip Roth writes a book called The Prague Orgy, um, which comes out in 1985, uh, where there are all these meditations on the uselessness <laughs> Of, of this uh, effort. And he, uh, in, in that, uh, this is one of the lines from that book, mightier than the sword. This place is proof that a book isn't as mighty as the mind of its most benighted reader. Right. And, and then five years later, Havel is the, well, <laughs> is the president of the country. And this is from Jared's essay. As a playwright, a philosopher, an essayist, the metaphysician in chief is the the title. Yeah, the metaphysician in chief. As a playwright, a philosopher, an essayist, and one of the eminent adversaries of his country's regime, Havel initially initially regarded his election as quote an absurd joke. Philip Roth privately described it as Joseph K making it to the castle, and Havel was not the only one. Michael Zantowski, known for his translations of Baldwin, Mailer, and Joseph Heller, was elected to the Senate. Eda Kriseova, a journalist and short story writer, became one of Havel's key advisors, and Yaroslav Koran, who helped introduce the works of Henry Miller and Charles Bukowski into, in, uh, into Czech. Like, these people are, are, is the mayor of Prague, these people are on the government, and then, you know, Havel goes to the U.S. Congress and delivers a speech where he declares that consciousness precedes being, and he gets a standing ovation for that line. <laughs> Dear Mr. Speaker, dear Mr. President, dear senators and members of the House, ladies and gentlemen, my advisors advised me to speak on this important occasion in Czech. I don't know why. Perhaps they wanted 
you to enjoy the sweet sounds of my mother tongue. Yeah, by the way, you know Chomsky, Noam Chomsky, um, wrote like a a very scathing uh, response to that speech, essentially accusing Havel of being, uh, you know, dancing for empire, uh, coming to Congress. And uh, it doesn't surprise you. It's a very, very Chomskyite response. Um, But yeah, but that that speech occasioned like a, I believe it was actually, it might have been a letter Chomsky wrote to Alexander Coburn, but basically Mm. he denounces Havel as a sort of, you know, as a as a tool of empire, and and for being kind of vapid and performative, and like and being friends with Clinton and stuff like that, and being all, a prop. All of it. Of, yeah, yeah, I understand. Yeah. Well, the more the more I would say, the more potent and the more uh, the more sort of pressing critique actually came from uh, Brodsky, yeah. who did a piece in the New York Review of Books. I think shortly after that appearance, Havel's appearance in Congress, or perhaps it was a few years later, in which he. He, I mean, I don't know if we want to go into this, but in which he says basically like from which chair or from which institution will the so-called metaphysical order or politics of conscience that you speak of, Mr. Havel, be enforced? Like what apparatus do we have to actually uh, uh, enforce something like that unless we're all supposed to you know, spontaneously uh, come to some self-awareness about this, like some kind of mass auto-enlightenment uh, that will then manifest in our institutions. But was there any indication that he was attempting to enforce this in any well, no, way? No, this is precisely, I think, the point, right? So Havel, for obvious reasons... What, meaning that, that it's just empty and gestural? He, so he, he develops his political thought in response to power, right? But then there's the question of what do you do when you actually have the power? What sort of institutions do you want? Havel would talk about like how we are bound to something higher, though exactly what um, is not ever really yeah. clarified and he says you know we need to get behind a beyond i'm barring for from jared's essay purely national perception of the world uh the only way to transcend this would be to cultivate a worldwide pluralistic metaculture um based on recognition of our common humanity and then jared writes but from which body would this new metaculture emerge and be upheld the un a new north atlantic treaty organization a metaphysical council institutions especially rule-based ones which arise mainly out of the need to restrain truancy are ill-equipped for the task and so there's this sort of question of there's what Havel wants. And of course, you know, one of the things that he presides over as president and it, coming down too hard on him because Czechoslovakia emerges relatively well out of the post, you know, uh, I'd say it, emer- I'd say it emerges probably better than any other yeah. um, central European or Eastern European state. Right. So this, this critique is not a, an overall differentiation of Havel, um, but he does preside over the, the dissolution of Czechoslovakia, right. And the split, um, and a split of the country. But uh, just to be clear, he presides over it in the sense that he doesn't protest or go to war or He anything. doesn't know how to effectively use the reins of power in order to prevent uh, it from happening, right? Yeah, and, the separation is a deal brokered basically by the politicians to, yeah. to, to separate the countries and have you know two capitals in Bratislava and in Prague and Havel, who as the president, we have to remember he's the Czech president is not like the Limited American power. president. The Czech yeah. president is a ceremonial figure, a symbolic figure, basically. Um, Havel was basically powerless to affect this. He 
he said that he was against the split between Czech and Slovakia. He wanted the Federation to continue, but Czechoslovakia itself, having risen out of the right to self-determination from the Austrian empire, he recognized the Slovaks right to self-determination. And so he didn't stand in its way, even though he did vocally oppose it. Or organize to ensure there would be actually be a referendum to see that it was what was actually desired. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I mean, look for me, this is all interesting. Jared's essay is fascinating on precisely this point of um, the sort of, you know, the strange afterlife of the author of The Power of the Powerless as a, a statesman of sorts. Right. And, um, you know, my understanding was also that he married a kind of, uh, was she a soap opera star or, uh, <laughs> right, and sort of lost uh, standing in part. My, This was... It, his second wife, I mean, the, the woman to which he was married for many years, I think died in the early 90s. Um, and then he married like a, an actress, basically a, a younger. But this bothered uh, people, uh, right? This bothered checks to sort of hurt um, his standing or no? Well, I can't speak for the Czech people, but no, I don't think it hurt his standing too much. I, I think if anything, it, the thing that damaged his reputation internationally was the uh, the war in uh, Yugoslavia and the the uh, quote unquote humanitarian bombing that took place there, which was a phrase that was attributed to Havel, although he never said it. I can't try tried to track it down. There's no confirmed source that he ever said that, but it was a phrase attributed to him, and that was something that kind of um, dogged him for the rest of his political career. People here. That he advocated for NATO bombing. Yeah. And he described it as being sort of like for humanitarian reasons. And then the phrase humanitarian bombing got attached to him. Yeah, right. Czech people still bring that up today. Whenever Havel's name yeah. comes up, they always say like, oh yeah, but what about the humanitarian bombing thing? Like that, for whatever reason that the, he can't get away from that. It's odd that that would, I, I could see that being uh like the tarnished legacy abroad. I'm surprised to hear that that's the sticking point among Czechs as well. But look, for me, the the thing that, you know, the lasting legacy will be the this very, I think, uh, deep and precise in its way, yeah. mapping out of this sort of decentralized automated post-totalitarian system um and and it it is a it describes a political formula that can be filled in with different kind of ideological contents but remains more or less the same in part because of the underlying technological character of it it really is really does resemble a kind of cybernetic feedback system i I do want to say something too that i think is is maybe relevant to contemporary politics right because i do actually have a lot of faith in the sort of ability of people who after enough time like having a sense there's something inherently fraudulent about what we're being sold like revolting against it right um but then whatever that sort of political or kind of general discontent is with the current order in the system it needs to be channeled right into into something that's not purely private, right? 
that if there is going to be a metaphysical revolution, it needs to be sustained and supported by institutions, right? And I think that the leaving that piece of it simply to the isolated individual, I don't think it ultimately goes anywhere, right? And I think that there's all sorts of sort of avenues for coercion um, and hemming people in. I mean, and, and, and of course he talks about this in, in a kind of capitalist society. Yeah, he even talks about like sham sham individualism, right. basically, the individualism uh, of, of the West at the time that he was writing in a consumer society. So it, I think that the kind of question remains of like, all right, wh- like what are the institutions that you need to build to make a kind of individualism that's not sham individualism, right? Um, and you can't blame somebody who spent most of his time as a dissident for not having a fully articulated, it's enough to get this piece and it's an incredible essay. Um, but I think that, yeah, Jer- if Jared's essay is really interesting on the debates. Yeah. Also, I mean, that's where it starts. I mean, this is not, this essay is not attempting to, it seems explicitly not attempting to uh, be articulate about the kind of institutional direction or the future political domain. He's saying like uh, at this stage within the post-totalitarian system, the first step, yeah, the first thing is to yep. live in truth. I mean, it's, it's very much the Solzhenitsyn point as well. And I think that they are coming from strangely, you know, similar places in the sense that both believe that there's an organic life, an authentic reality, which is being suppressed or distorted. And that's simply expressing whether it's the sort of, uh, you know, Christian Orthodox Solzhenitsyn version or the, I don't because Havel was not a Christian or religious at all. Sort of spiritual sensibility famously had this kind of, in, in a in, in a prison, a kind of sense of he's a romantic, a Czech romantic uh, that doesn't yeah. Yeah, yeah and a kind of uh, existentialist or a, like you know German ex- yeah. phenomenologist, yeah. phenomenologicalologist, however you say that yeah. you know Heideggerian, whatever. There was there's some capital B well, B. I often yeah. they both had that. I sense. often think of Havel's. Um, this might be a bit of a stretch, but I often think that Havel's. Um, Political philosophy, you know, in practice, was it was very Athenian in some ways. It was very Aristotelian. Yeah, right. The idea that like a, a civil society yeah. is connected to the the soil, to the earth, and like Athenian democracy was based on the fact that we are men of Athens. We were born of the soil, mm-hmm. and we have a sacred duty to live in this kind of society and to uphold it. And that you know, just as a you know, a seed grows into a tree, it is the nature of sort of social organization to grow into a state and for the state to be holistic and to remember its roots. It's like the the teleology of the state is essentially, it's a metaphysical thing. It's a holistic thing. It's not ideological. It's not political. It's something else entirely. And that's what Havel, I think, tried to communicate in most of his writing post, let's say, 1977, 1978, all the way through his presidency. And he was always reaching for some way to articulate this because I think the ideas were not fully f- formed or f- fully coherent, even for him. And what those ideas looked like in practice, I think, was even more elusive. I don't think he himself knew yeah. how 
how that would manifest itself. Uh, but I do think that he, I think that Havel believed that, if I can say what he believed and not speaking for him, but I think he seemed to believe that uh, good institutions grow out of uh, enlightened people and our reflections of that and that not the other way around. He was definitely not a Leninist in that sense. He did not believe in a sort of intellectual elite or intellectual avant-garde that would organize society based on certain ideas. Uh, I think he thought that was disastrous. Yeah, he explicitly rejects it. Yeah. Should we, uh, we used to do like, if you were going to live your life by this manifesto, what would you do? (laughs) So if I, if I were the green grocer, uh, what would I do? Put out a sign in this house, I believe. Well, I think Havel even says in the essay, or maybe, I think he says this, I would just put a question mark on the sign. Yeah, like, yeah. workers of the world unite. Yeah. <laughs> I think that would be enough. A question mark would, would do it, I would say. I feel like uh, the sort of most authentic way to live in truth at this point would be to retreat from all public political declarations like like what's the the what <laughs> the farthest you can get from the slogan in the green grocer's storefront is not a different slogan with you know the opposite political valence it's like a vow of silence or something you know well what was what was the joke of the the groucho marxist like no more mindless slogans or something like that right yeah. <laughs> something akin to the, that uh... I, I I interviewed a diplomat who was who was in Prague when they he knew the the charter folks. He actually got a copy of Charter seventy seven in December of nineteen seventy six. He says, "I think I'm probably the first person to type it out in English." Um, and uh, he was later ambassador. Uh, was later an ambassador, he lost his position because he referred to the Armenian genocide as a genocide. And I asked him. Uh, were you influenced by your time in Czechoslovakia and living in truth? He was like, oh, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> oh, <laughs> yeah. So we should go on to White Light, White Heat. Jake, you picked this. I picked this because famously um, this was a record that influenced uh, the Czech Velvet Revolution. And so it seemed appropriate. And I thought it was going to be a stretch, especially, Jared, you don't know the the backstory of our disastrous girls episode, but basically... Um, I thought that was a good did- episode. No, no, I'm I'm joking. But I offended a number of people by referring to the HBO program Girls as a sitcom, which I stand by. But I also do <laughs> intend seen to, one episode. You're I know. Well, it's, I intend to watch more of it. I I I could see the sparks of you know intelligence and and wit and all of that. I just when you watch only one, it's a sitcom. What can I tell you? But um. But I plan to watch more. But so I thought, ah, maybe this is going to be a stretch. But then actually listening to White Light, White Heat, like really sitting down, listening to it all the way through. I only wish I had it on vinyl. I listened to it through my terrible um, laptop speakers is my only regret. It probably wouldn't sound much better on vinyl. (laughs) See, actually, I was thinking like because there's so much distortion, 
on it, I wanted to hear the distortion yeah. clean. If you know what I mean? Like I yeah. actually wanted to get this. I actually of had clean. this experience where I listened to it on earbuds and it was not, it was a, and then I listened to it in the car. Right. And it was a very different experience. And I was like, all right, like sister Ray, which way was, it was it much more better intense? in the car. Like with the, the sound actually around oh, you. Really? Yeah. It's definitely not a headphones record. It's definitely, no. it needs to be played through a sound system. It absolutely. sounds bad on headphones yeah um, so it it is a sister ray was still too much for me but there were like 10 oh, minutes where i was really enjoying it and sister then... ray is um genius man it's so yeah. good um and it's, it's very different phil and i were talking about this before we started i mean it's obviously very very different from their first two records i think lou reed was kind of like a a kind of controlling yeah, yeah, well, they, yeah, very yeah, they banged person. out this record in, I think, oh, like right. two weeks, maybe even right. less than that. And right. it's, I don't know, I was reading up on like the uh, the production of the record, like the recording techniques that they use. I mean, it sounds like, it sounds like the band is playing behind a closed door. It right. sounds like there's a microphone in another room and you can sort of <laughs> hear the band through the wall or something. There's no articulation in, in uh, the drums or the guitar and stuff. And I think even... Um, some of the mics were not working like, like all the these drums like and stuff. fuzz sounds and yeah and they just left it you know <laughs> there's there's there are bits where like in lady godiva's like where they're like alternating vocals in a way that it almost feels like they're trying to make it as hideous as possible in fact i actually think kale said that the second one was consciously anti-beauty mm -hmm. yeah yeah it's strange i like kale as a singer but he sounds terrible here. I mean, it, some of it kind of works with the music. Look, the way I look at this record is the first song, White Light, White Heat, uh, is incredible. And Sister Ray, the last song, which is like 18 minutes, mm -hmm. is incredible to just in their own. Like White Light, White Heat is like the sort of prototype of we're going to take, you know, we're going to do a, a 50s rock and roll rockabilly song but um but with this sort of different affect and like in a new york sleaze kind of way and um a new york flanner like a new york flanner low life version of um literate low life version of 50s rock and roll and then Sister Ray is hard to describe, except to say it's a kind of junky transvestite droning rock and roll apotheosis of some sort, but brilliant. And then everything in between is like ambient and cool in its way. But like for me personally, I could sort of take her, take them or leave them as songs. Yeah, I mean it's like it's like a seventeen minute freak out. You know, it's <laughs> yeah, but with a beat, right? Like it's yeah. not all psych freak out. It's, it's not, not like the, yeah. That's what I like about it is like it keeps the beat. It's a total freak out, but it keeps the beat. Here's what I was thinking about in terms of how how does this make sense in connection to Havel and, and Power of the Powerless and and what's going on with the Prague Spring and. The the thing that popped into my head was, and I, I don't I don't think I'm forcing this, I think it's actually there in some way, is like, okay, first of all, you just have the element of rock and roll as like just personal freedom, right? Just like 
that's the clear thing. Like, like the hell with all the systems to hell with ideology. Like this is just, it's a freak out. It's totally individualistic and it's accountable to no one and nothing. Okay. There's that element of it, but there's another element of it, which is like, what's the velvet underground doing in particular. And what they're doing, especially through read is there's this idea of like, we're going to give you the poetry of the street. So it's, real uh, aesthetic attention. And of course, Reed yeah. studied with the modernist writer, poet, writer, Del Del Schwartz, and, and as he was going insane. Yeah. Yeah. And he was I think, very influenced by Burroughs when they yeah. were doing this record. Right. He was yeah. using kind of Burroughs. Techniques. Reed said that Delmore Schwartz showed him how with the simplest language imaginable and very short, you can accomplish the most astonishing heights. So he has this aesthetic intention but he's bringing it out of what rock and roll had been about, which was about soda pop and going steady yeah. and um, my red Chevrolet. And he's taking it instead to this uh, New York demimond. And so there's a way in which like in, in terms of what Havel is describing, that's Reed's attempt to get at what is real life in his context. And so there's this marriage of the sort of unadorned, unpretty, still at the time legitimately transgressive um, subject matter and the formal qualities of rock and roll and that makes sense to me in terms of people struggling to express, you know, their sort of authentic, organic individual experiences within a totalitarian system. What Havel called the, actually, he calls it this, I'm not sure if it's in Power of the Powerless or maybe it's in one of his other pieces. He calls it the aesthetics of banality. There's a t there's definitely a tie in there. It's also worth noting, this is recorded during the summer of love, right? Mm. Oh, well, yeah, So right. it's like the peak of... You know, like the hippie culture, which Lou Reed later said, he's like, it was very funny until there were a lot of casualties and it wasn't funny anymore. I don't think a lot of people realized at the time what they were playing with. The, that flower power thing eventually crumbled as a result of drug casualties and the fact that it was a nice idea, but not a very realistic one. What we, the Velvets, were talking about, though it seemed like a down, was just a realistic portrayal of certain kinds of things. Yeah, well, you think about like where rock music went in the 70s and how sort of dark and uh, cynical and fatalistic rock music was for a lot of the 70s. You think about a character like, you know, like Bowie's characters like Ziggy Stardust and the Thin White Duke and stuff. Bowie loved this record. That was a very, yeah, and Bowie was very influenced by the Velvet Underground and Bowie's aesthetic in the early 70s was a very conscious rejection of the 60s. Uh, and how sort of sinful and, and de dark and decadent that culture had eventually become by 72, 73. And the Velvet Underground was pointing, I think, the way to that before people fully realized or appreciated that it had begun as early as late 67, early 68. I mean, there's a lot of people who would claim that the 60s were officially over uh, in the summer of 69, like after Woodstock and the murder of Sharon Tate. Um, but I think you get the sense with the Velvet Underground record that the 60s are already moving in that direction. Yeah, man, there, there's just like you see those pictures of them and um, 
what can you say? It's obvious, but like, they're just so, so far ahead of their time. Like Mo Tucker, Maureen Tucker, their drummer has like that short boyish haircut already and not like a cute, um, not, not like Gene Severi and Brian. Exactly. Right. Like not that at all. You know, Mo Tucker later became a tea party activist. Um, the great Mo Tucker, but yeah, they just, they're on to something very different, totally their own thing. They've got that droning quality that I guess comes from John Cale. John Cale had been playing with, um, who's the famous guy with the orchestra. Yeah. John Cage. John Cage. Yeah. No, John Cage. Yeah. No, no, no. Kale is playing with. Uh, Did he meet John Cage? But and and there's a famous the guy who has the orchestra where oh. they would hold one note for like twelve hours or whatever. It's just the synthesis of elements, right? Like uh, the drone, the psych freak out, the kind of Hubert Selby inspired sub beatnik, like real low life thematic stuff that Lou Reed is into. And then like Lou Reed as a kind of, um, you know, Brill building Tin Pan Alley songwriter, who's got this genius sense of how to construct a pop lyric and a, and a, and a pop melody. It's great. It's not a record I want to listen to a lot. Like it's not a record I feel compelled to put on all the time where there are other Velvet's records. Sister Ray is a good driving song. Oh, you shouldn't do that. Don't you know you'll stain the carpet? Now, don't you know you'll stain the carpet? And by the way, it's got a dollar. Oh, no, man, I haven't got the time. Ah, oh, it's better than that. Man, I don't know. And it's... Uh... That does it a disservice to say long. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, Tom Petty writes driving. So, and I love Tom Petty. That's not a knock. I mean, Tom Petty is one of America's great... Yeah, if you're gonna go for a drive, you need to put on like uh, "Damn the Torpedoes" or something like that. That's that's driving music. <laughs> I mean, I, th- I feel like I could do a whole episode on driving music. I have a whole list in my mind, like yeah. EPMD driving music, Black Sheep driving music, the first two Wu Tang Clan <laughs> records, Enter the, uh, the yeah, the, Tom the Petty, Wu-Tang. Thin Lizzy, Thin Lizzy driving music, Enter the Thirty Six Chambers, you yeah. know, the first two Ramones records driving music. I want to say for the record, by the way, the Lou Reed Metallica collaboration, which people absolutely hated, is phenomenal. And I strongly recommend that people check out the Lou uh, Reed Metallica what's it, what's collaboration. It what's it called? Lulu or something like that? Or Yes, yes, yes. I think Lulu and I think that comes from something from Delmore Schwartz, actually. I believe. I haven't I haven't heard that, but do you know do you know the story of um the the gorillas song that Lou Reed did with Damon Albarn. No, so there's a song off the Plastic Beach record called uh, "Some Kind of Nature," which is actually it's my favorite track off that record. And Damon had been trying to get Lou Reed to do something for Gorillas for years, and he kept sending him beats and stuff. And Lou Reed kept saying like, "This is garbage. Don't bother me with this." And so finally, he sent him something that he kind of liked. So he said, "Okay, come to my studio in New York, and we'll bang this out in you know in one afternoon." And so they get there. Damon's waiting for him, and Lou is like, "I gotta go to like the doctors or something. I gotta go across town. I'm gonna write the lyrics when I'm in the back of the car, and when I come back, we're gonna do one take, 
and we're going to do it the way I want to do it. And then that's it. That's all you're getting from me. <laughs> and so he came back a couple hours later and he just did a, basically a spoken word track over top of the beat. And it's not a perfect take, like from a performance standpoint, but it's a great song. Uh, and that just shows you like what kind of guy he was even as late as 2004 or whenever they were recording that song. Like he still didn't take any shit from anybody. <laughs> you know, I always thought the Velvet Underground first and foremost was about freedom. Freedom to write about what you want, play it the way you want, put it out any way you want. Uh, that was, I thought, the bottom line of the whole thing. And lo and behold, it found a reception in Czechoslovakia. I even had that demonstrated to me uh, in the sense of meeting all these people who said, the music did this and this. I went to jail and I had this with me and these lyrics made me feel so-and-so. And the kind of repression they're talking about here people, kids being told they can't play the guitar on the Charles Bridge because they're worried that, that if kids get together, they'll talk, and they would. I mean, that's why people were afraid of rock and roll records in the first place, and they were right to be afraid. Lou, Lou Reed at once sat behind me at a literary reading. I mean, this, this couldn't have been much long before he died, actually. And he was just complaining and talking shit about how bad the reading was. <laughs> 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 Not happy I was together. like, who is the old this block? jerk? And I turn around, I was like, that is Lou Reed. <laughs> <laughs> that, is, that is Lou Reed buying me talking right now. <laughs> yeah. This was fantastic. Uh, happy to do it. Jared, yeah, thank you. This was Jared, thank you so excellent. much. Really good stuff. You're, everybody should check out that essay in Liberties. And everybody, if you haven't read Absolutely. it, Power of the Powerless is incredible. It's really good. Uh -huh. Yeah. So cool. We'd also like to thank Fairfield University for sponsoring Manifesto, a podcast. Fairfield is a Jesuit university in Fairfield, Connecticut, whose mission is to develop the creative intellectual potential of students and to foster in them ethical and religious values and a sense of social responsibility. I also teach there, so it's great to be associated with Fairfield, and we thank them for their sponsorship. And from that point of view, it's most improbable that anyone will ever know exactly who is enjoying the shadow of whom. I've given our objector his fair share of program time. When these men talk, I never know whether to regard him as a man of genius or as an ape of genius.